please join me in thanking Credit Karma for supporting Muller, she wrote. Credit Karma, apply with more confidence today. Ready to apply? Head to creditkarma.com slash loan offers to see personalized offers. Hey all, this is Glenn Kirshner, and you're listening to Muller, she wrote. So to be clear, Mr. Trump has no financial relationships with any Russian oligarchs. That's what he said. That's what I said. That's obviously what our position is. I'm not aware of uh, any of those activities. I have been called a surrogate at a time or two in that campaign, and I did not have communications with the Russians. What do I have to get involved with Putin for? I have nothing to do with Putin. I've never spoken to him. I don't know anything about him other than he will respect me. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. So, it is political. You're a communist. No, Mr. Green. Communism is just a red herring. Like all members of the oldest profession, I'm a capitalist. Hello, and welcome to Muller, She Wrote. I'm your host, formerly known as AG, Allison Gill. Big, big show today. With a new set of charges against a Russian member of the Duma and two staffers out of the Southern District of New York. Uh, I also have a story about illegal donations to a Trump pack, the $2 billion Saudi Kushner payoff, and an update on Rudy, also the investigation into his conduct in Ukraine in 2019. And of course, I'll have the Fantasy Indictment League and an update on the Tom Barrick probe in the Eastern District of New York. Who knew the impact? that the Mueller probe would would have and still be making waves five years after it began. Uh, Well, I did, which is why I wanted my co-host to freeze my head and keep me alive if I died before we got to see any justice. But I'm still here and I'll bring it to you all today. With regards to my daily news podcast, The Daily Beans, if it's dropped out of your feed, Apple Podcasts did something weird. And to fix it, all you have to do is unsubscribe and resubscribe. So that will fix that problem. We also lost all of our ratings on Apple for the Daily Beans. So if you have a minute, help us kick Hannity off the charts and leave us a rating. We would appreciate it. All right, I have a lot to get to today, so let's jump in with just the facts. First up, from Kirkpatrick and Kelly at The Times, six months after leaving the White House, Jared Kushner secured a $2 billion investment from a fund led by the Saudi Crown Prince, a close ally to him during the Trump administration, despite objections from the fund's advisors about the merits of the deal. A panel that screens investments for the main Saudi sovereign wealth fund cited concerns it had about the proposed deal with Kushner's newly formed private equity firm, Affinity Partners, previously undisclosed documents show. The objection included, quote, the inexperience of the Affinity Fund Management, unquote, the possibility that the kingdom would be responsible for, quote, the bulk of the investment and risk, unquote, due diligence on the fledgling firm's operations that found them, quote, unsatisfactory in all aspects, uh, a proposed asset management fee that seems excessive, and, quote, public relations risks from Kushner prior, because of his prior role as an advisor to Donald John Trump. That's according to minutes of the panel's meeting last June 30th. And I have to say, when the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund says, hmm, This is a public relations risk when they don't want to do business with you because you're toxic, Jared Kushner. That says a lot. But days later, a full board for the $620 billion public investment fund led by Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, Saudi Arabia's de facto ruler and beneficiary of Kushner's support when he worked at the White House. He overruled 
the panel. Kushner played a leading role, as we know, inside the Trump administration defending MBS after U.S. intelligence agencies concluded he had approved the 2018 killing of and dismemberment and murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Um, now, the Times reported last fall that Kushner had been seeking a Saudi investment. Now, the internal fund records and correspondence obtained by the New York Times show the outcome, scale, and timing of his firm's deal, as well as the debate it aroused. Those documents and other filings indicate that, at this point, Kushner's venture depends primarily on the Saudi money, which they didn't want to give up, but MBS overrode that board. Kushner planned to raise up to $7 billion, according to a document prepared last summer for the Saudi's funds board, but so far he appears to have signed up few other major investors. In its most recent public filings with the Securities and Exchange Commission dated March 31st, Kushner's firm reported that its main fund had $2.5 billion under management, almost entirely from investors based overseas, and most of that is the $2 billion from Saudi Arabia. The Saudi documents obtained by the Times say that in return for its investment, the Saudi fund would receive a stake of at least 28% in Kushner's main investment vehicle. No law or rules constrain the investment activities of former administration officials after leaving the White House. Many from both parties have profited from connections and experiences gained while serving in the government. But Robert Weissman, who is president of the nonprofit group Public Citizen, called Kushner's relationship with the Saudis extremely troubling, arguing that his stance toward the kingdom's leadership as a senior advisor, quote, makes the business partnership appear even more to be both a reward to and an investment in Kushner. And when we talk about reward, don't, of course, there's the Jamal Khashoggi thing. But remember, Kushner got the president's daily brief and gave intel to MBS about traitors to the crown. And a week after Kushner visited MBZ in Riyadh, several dozens of those traitors were rounded up and arrested. Also, Kushner helped with the Qatar blockade, a longtime U.S. ally, and helped broker the $110 billion Saudi arms sale, circumventing congressional approval with the help of Mike Pompeo. Senator Elizabeth Warren has called for an investigation into this $2 billion investment, and I will keep you posted. Also, in other news, a Canadian steel industry billionaire illegally helped steer $1.75 million in donations to a pro-Trump super PAC and has agreed to pay one of the largest fines ever levied by the FEC, Federal Election Commission, to settle the case. Now, this is a $975,000 fine. It will be paid by entities controlled by Barry Ziegelman, a steel industry executive from Ontario, Canada, who had lobbied the Trump administration to use its power to tighten import restrictions on Ziegelman's competitors from around the world. The action came as the election commission continues a multi-year crackdown on foreign influence in American politics. Ziegelman's donations in 2018 to the America First Action Super PAC helped him secure an invitation to a private dinner with Trump at the Trump International Hotel in D.C., where Ziegelman personally pushed Trump about the steel tariffs and other matters. The $1.75 million in donations came from a Pennsylvania-based subsidiary of Ziegelman's company named Wheatland Tube. But the New York Times first reported in 2019 that Ziegelman played a role in directing one of his executives, who was a U.S. citizen, to send in the contributions, some of the largest made by any donor to a super PAC, even though federal law prohibits foreigners from participating in decision-making related to campaign donations, as well as from directly writing campaign checks. This $975,000 fine is the third largest in the history of the Federal Election Commission and the largest ever imposed in a case associated with an illegal foreign contribution. All right, everybody, it's time for Sabotage. All right, first up, 
This could throw a wrench into our Fantasy Indictment League picks. And this is from Marcy Wheeler's blog, Empty Wheel. In a status hearing on March 21st, prosecutors in the Tom Barrack case responded to a question Barrack had posed the day earlier, whether they planned to supersede his indictment. And what the government said is, well, we reserve the right to do so, and it might happen in June. Tom Barrack then complained about discovery holdups. Hey, we, we need all the stuff. And in a response to that, filed April 5th, the government elaborated on an ongoing investigation into Barrack and, quote, several people identified as co-conspirators in the indictment, but not yet charged. And I'm quoting here from the filing. By early January 2022, that's just a few months ago, less than six months since indictment, the government substantially completed the disclosure of discoverable material that was currently in its possession. The government has turned over additional material since that time, approximately 80,000 more files, but with the exception of fewer than 20 files, all of that material came into the government's possession after January 3rd, 2022. Marcy goes on to explain most of the people described as co-conspirators are Emiratis that the government is probably not going to risk charging, but Trump officials are named too. Some of the people described in the indictment, most notably Paul Manafort, who recently found himself unable to fly to Dubai because his passport had been revoked, did things on which a five-year statute of limitations has expired, though there's a barrack-related action Manafort took in 2017 that's not yet time-barred, so put a pin in that. But that, that's not true of the actions of Steve Bannon, described in the indictment. The indictment describes this meeting U.S. Person 1 had with MBZ, and that person is none other than Steve Bannon. Bannon's not the only one referred to as not yet charged co-conspirator, but he's clearly one of them, Marcy says. And in other sabotage news, CNN reports the following. Federal prosecutors may soon reach a charging decision regarding Rudy Giuliani's foreign lobbying efforts involving Ukraine after he helped investigators unlock several electronic devices that were seized by the FBI, according to multiple sources familiar with the probe. Giuliani has also offered to appear and for a separate interview to prove he's got, quote, nothing to hide. That's according to his lawyer speaking with CNN, and that renews a proposal that federal prosecutors have previously rebuffed. Investigators, as we know, seized 18 devices during the raid last April, and since then, a court-appointed special master known as Barbara Jones has been reviewing all of those materials to shield from prosecutors any materials that could be considered attorney-client privilege. The review has been long-running, in part because investigators haven't been able to unlock several of the phones. In recent weeks, Giuliani met with prosecutors, and during the meeting, he assisted them in unlocking three devices that investigators had been un unable to open. That's according to people familiar with the investigation. It is unclear if Giuliani also answered questions during that meeting. And armed with all of that information, armed with all of that, I want to get to the Fantasy Indictment League, but I have to take a quick break. Stay with us. Hey, everybody, it's AG. I've seen firsthand how stressful it can be to pay down debt, especially when you need to keep track of multiple monthly payment dates and multiple interest rates. So if you're tired of juggling due dates and interest rates, consolidating your debts with a personal loan could be the answer. One due date per month will simplify your life, and Credit Karma will ensure you find the best option for your budget. With Credit Karma, you can find loan offers tailored to your credit profile, so you know how much you might be able to qualify for. That is the coolest part. They uh, are able to provide a clear indication of your chances of approval. Credit Karma can do this, so you can choose loan offers that are likely to be accepted when you do that hard pull on your credit, and that makes you able to apply with greater confidence. On Credit Karma, comparing loan offers is 100% free, 
It does not affect your credit score to compare the offers and learn what you might be most able to get approved for. And this could save you money. Credit Karma, apply with more confidence today. Ready to apply? Head to creditkarma.com slash loan offers to see personalized offers for you. Again, that's creditkarma.com slash loan offers to find a loan. That's creditkarma.com slash loan offers. You'll be glad you did. All right, everybody, welcome back. It's time for the Fantasy Indictment League. I'm going to be indicted! No, it is going to be a... Indicted! Honey, dick. Indicted! Honey. I'm going to be indicted! Oh, they can't. It's going to be okay. Just calm down. I can't calm down. I'm going to be indicted! And if you had rando Russians on your team last week like I did, give yourself three points for three Russians, one for each, indicted by the Southern District of New York this week. An indictment was unsealed against Russian Duma member Babakov and two of his staffers, Vorobiev and uh, Plisyuk, I believe it's pronounced. Now, this is a what they call a speaking indictment, or what Joyce Vance calls a name and shame indictment, as these Russians will likely never be arrested or tried in the United States. We do not know when the indictment was filed under seal, but it was unsealed this past week. I personally think the indictment was filed recently, uh, even though... The crimes in it occurred mostly or stopped occurring in 2017. Um, and I think the indictment was filed under seal before the five-year statute of limitations was set to expire. So the question then becomes, what evidence did the government recently get that allowed them to indict? To me, and I could be totally wrong on this, uh, and I want to let you know, I'm exiting fact land and entering speculation land. The Southern District of New York recently got all of the evidence in the Rudy Giuliani raid after the special master, Barbara Jones, had reviewed it for attorney-client privilege. The reason I believe the Rudy evidence is somehow in play here is that this is the Southern District of New York, which is where Rudy is being investigated for acting as an unregistered foreign agent, among other things. Also, the timing of the unsealing of this indictment, as we find out that the Southern District of New York will soon make a charging decision in Rudy's case. And that the crimes outlined in this indictment have to do with lobbying on behalf of Russia to skirt sanctions for actions in Ukraine. The unindicted co-conspirator um, starring role in this indictment, mentioned over and over again, is described as an American citizen with contacts in Congress and with other high-level U.S. officials that is sympathetic to Russia and not a fan of Ukraine. This person is referred to in the indictment as CC1. I reached out to my federal prosecutor friends, and CC stands for generally co-conspirator, co-conspirator one. The indictment has three counts. Count one is conspiracy to act as an agent of a foreign government without registering with the attorney general. That's the conspiracy count. 18 U.S. Code 371, conspiracy to defraud the United States, and 3238. As we know, 371 uh, is the conspiracy part. So this isn't yet a charge for failing to file as a foreign agent. Uh, either the regular kind of FARA violation or the 951 kind, known as espionage light, the same charge they hit Tom Barrack with. The 3238, 18 U.S. Code 3238, is offenses not committed in any district, probably the stuff they did in Russia, that the Russians did. And check this out. Here's a quote from Count One. From at least 2012, and up to June 2017, in the Southern District of New York and Russia and other places, known and unknown, the three Russians and others known and unknown, at least one of whom is expected to be first brought to and arrested in the Southern District of New York, did conspire to commit an offense against the U.S., namely acting as a foreign agent without first registering with the Attorney General in violation of 18 U.S. Code 951. Unquote. 
So basically, the charge against the Russians is the conspiracy, 371, and the, the, that happened outside of the United States, 3238, and conspiracy for including CC1 for violating 951, 18 U.S. Code 951, Espionage Light, which is not charged in this indictment, but it's named here, as is CC1 and someone who's going to be arrested and charged in the Southern District of New York. Hmm. So, the politically connected American citizen known as CC1 will be charged in the Southern District with 951. Quote, It was part and an object of the conspiracy that CC1, who is a U.S. person, and others known and unknown, knowingly would and did act in the United States as an agent of a foreign government and foreign officials, to wit, the Russian Federation and officials of that government, without prior notification to the Attorney General as required by law, and a violation of Title VIII, 18 United States Code, Section 951. So, CC1 isn't charged in this indictment, but he will be. So what's the conspiracy, you ask? That's what the first 40 pages of the 44-page indictment are about, and I encourage you to read it. Uh, but let me sum it up for you. In early 2012, that's 10 years ago, CC1 attempted to contact a U.S. congressperson to set up a meeting for Babakov. Okay, so this goes back to 2012. On January 11th, CC3, that's co-conspirator, unindicted co-conspirator 3, which is a European friend of CC1. There's also a CC2 who is another European friend of CC1. CC3 sent an email to Babakov's staffer advising that CC3 and CC1 were working on behalf of Babakov to facilitate meetings in the United States with advisors to a U.S. official. <laughs> Advisors to a U.S. official in January 11th, 2017. In February, a month later, the three Russians applied for visas. So we're going to meet with these people. And they put CC1 down as a reference. In March 2017, CC1 prepared a letter on behalf of Babakov and sent it to another Congress member, Congress member 2, seeking a meeting for Babakov with that Congress member. In April of 2017... CC1 emailed that congressperson, inviting them to attend a conference in Crimea, supporting a Russian-backed prime minister they were going to install there, and to ask if they'd pay all the travel expenses. The Russians. Pay all the travel expenses for the congressperson. And another business person, by the way, who was going to be a keynote speaker, a U.S. business person. So what were they trying to do here? Well, according to the indictment, they wanted to get this U.S. official, the U.S. official's advisors, the Congress member and CC1 to go on the record denouncing U.S. involvement in Ukraine and to launch a pressure campaign against European countries that denounced Russia's annexation of Crimea. And also they wanted to overcome sanctions imposed on Russia by the U.S. for the annexation of Crimea. And I'll go into the other two counts here in a minute, but one of those counts is skirting the sanctions. The other one is visa fraud. So do we know anyone working with Russian-backed separatists in Ukraine to support the annexation, anyone that was working counter to the U.S. policy supporting Ukraine, someone maybe being investigated for failing to register as a foreign agent by the Southern District of New York that might or might not have recently been, you know, gotten a bunch of evidence on anyone. Can you think of anyone? I can. Oh, and uh, let's let's look at the rest of these charges here. If we go down to all the way to the end, and I'm scrolling. You're scrolling here with me. Boop, boop. Count two is the is the visa fraud count. 
and I'll get to it here and I'll just tell you why they are being charged with visa fraud. Um, the allegations contained in paragraphs 1 through 59 are incorporated as though fully set forth herein from at least in or about January 2017 up to and including at least in or about June 2017 in the Southern District of New York, Russia, and elsewhere outside of the jurisdiction of any particular state or district of the United States. So in New York, Russia, and pretty much anywhere else, Babakov and his two staffers, the defendants, and others known and unknown, at least one of whom is expected to be first brought to and arrested in the Southern District of New York, knowingly combined, conspired, confederated, and agreed together and with each other to commit an offense against the United States, to wit, visa fraud, in violation of Title 18 U.S. Code 1546A. It was part and an object of the conspiracy that these three Russians, and others, known and unknown, knowingly made under oath and under penalty of perjury under Title 28, United States Code Section 1746, knowingly subscribed as true false statements with respect to material facts and applications, their visa applications. They lied on their visa applications. This is the fancy way of saying that. And they um, it failed to contain any reasonable basis in law and fact and would obtain, receive, and possess a visa or other document prescribed by statute, uh, et cetera, et cetera, knowing it to have been procured by means of false claims or statements or to have been otherwise procured by fraud or unlawfully obtained, to wit, the three Russians, in a scheme to fraudulently obtain visas, permitting them to travel to the United States to meet with U.S. officials and advisors in furtherance of their foreign influence scheme by submitting applications containing false statements designed to conceal that they were traveling together and the purpose of their trip. And in furtherance, the defendants and their co-conspirators committed the following overt acts. On February 7th, 2017... The three Russians each applied for visas to enter the United States, and each falsely stated on his application he was traveling alone. On February 8th, the next day, 2017, Babakov falsely claimed to a U.S. consular official that he was traveling to New York City for a vacation by himself. On February 8th, 2017, Vorobiev falsely claimed uh, that he was traveling to visit friends in New York and D.C. by himself. And on February 8th, the other guy, Plisyuk, falsely claimed to the consular official that the purpose of his travel was to continue to vacation and visit friends. Now, count three is the sanctions part. Conspiracy to violate the International Emergency Economic Powers Act. And from at least in or about January 2017 up to June 2017 in the Southern District, Russia and elsewhere, the three defendants and others known and unknown, at least one of whom is expected to be first brought and arrested in the Southern District of New York, knowingly and willfully did combine, conspire, etc., and to violate prohibitions in and issued under the International Emergencies Economic Powers Act, IEEPA, uh, codified Title 50, United States Code 1701 to 1708. It was part and object of the conspiracy that defendants and others, known and unknown, would and did provide and cause others, including U.S. persons, to provide funds, goods, and services by, to, and for the benefit of Sergei Askinov, a specially designated national, without first obtaining the required approval of OFAC in violation of the executive orders. So when they were going to go to that Crimea conference for the prime minister, the Russian-backed prime minister that they were that in Crimea, that's um, Aksyonov. That's this guy. And he's on the OFAC sanctions list. So they're skirting sanctions. That's where all this comes from. And the defendants and others and unknown would and did receive cause and including U.S. persons and specially designated national without first obtaining the required approval of OFAC in violation of other executive orders and uh, CFR 
And they did engage in transactions, including with persons, uh, blah, blah, blah. The requirements of U.S. law with respect to provision funds and goods and services for the benefit of and the receipt of funds, goods, and services from Axionov, the specially designated national in violation of other executive orders, three other ones. So that's Title 50, U.S. Code 1705, and then they list all the codes. Then they talk about forfeiture uh, allegations, etc. So, can't think of who it could possibly be, but this week I'm drafting Rudy Giuliani again, <laughs> because uh, he's set to be charged fairly soon, along with Tonesig and Geneva. Uh, Dimitri Furtash. I'm going to say maybe one of the CC2 or CC3 guys is Dimitri Furtash, or maybe Shokin could be. Uh, superseding Tom Barrick charges. Those are due by June, but I'll just, I'll draft him now. I don't care. Of course, Matt Gates and L.A. Key and Jacob Engels will stay on my team. More rando Russians, and I'll close it out with Sidney Powell. All right. Uh, also, don't forget those superseding indictments for the Proud Boys, Enrique Tario and his gang are probably coming pretty soon. It's supposed to be before June, May or June. So we'll see what happens with that. Um, so that could be your like alternate bench. Uh, also out today, new episode of the MSW Book Club. I'm going over Wajaha Ali's Go Back to Where You Came From and other helpful recommendations on how to become an American. Incredible book. I highly recommend you pick it up. And I'll be back tomorrow morning with Dana Goldberg for The Daily Beans. Until then, please take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of the planet, take care of your mental health, and vote blue over Q. I've been AG, and this is Muller She Wrote. Muller She Wrote is written and produced by Allison Gill in partnership with MSW Media. Sound design and engineering are by Molly Hockey. Jesse Egan is our copywriter and our art and web designer by Joel Reeder at Moxie Design Studios. Muller She Wrote is a proud member of MSW Media, a group of creator-owned podcasts focused on news, justice, and politics. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. W Media.